This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Michelle Bowdler, author of Is Rape a Crime? It was an event that I didn't believe I would survive. And that in so many ways, um, what I think stuck stuck with me all these years is how violence and the belief that you're going to die isn't something that It's something that changes you, and it's not something that ever goes away. We'll be back with Michelle Bowdler in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 300th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich and meaningful content, like that on First Draft. We're simultaneously expanding the diversity of voices available for the public. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. No please, no ads. Also, starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I am also very grateful. I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this pitch seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that it's unlikely you are in front of a computer right now, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Michelle Bowdler, Executive Director of Health and Wellness at Tufts University and author of the nonfiction book, Is Rape a Crime? A Memoir, an Investigation, and a Manifesto. Bowdler is a graduate of the Harvard School of Public Health. 
Her writing has appeared in the New York Times and has been nominated for two Pushcart Prizes. Her book is Rape a Crime, looks at both the aftermath of Bowdler's brutal rape in 1984 Boston and investigates how the criminal and legal system has failed to pursue and prosecute rape crimes for decades. Fewer than 3% of reported rapes result in conviction. While Bowdler takes a stark look at her own case and the systematic treatment of rape crimes in America, her story also offers hope and purpose via the path she has forged, not just for herself, but as an advocate for others. As our society is looking more closely at how law enforcement operates, her book offers salient insight into severe flaws in the system. Please note there is one brief graphic description of Bowdler's rape nine minutes into our interview. We began the discussion with Bowdler talking about the title because the question, is rape a crime, seems like it would have an obvious yes answer. So the original title of the book was The Idea of Order, which uh, was taken from one of my favorite Wallace Stevens poems. And I meant it to be ironic uh, that somehow what we believe is stable and moving forward is in some ways a deception. But it was not understood by most of the readers, uh, my early readers, my writing group. And so when I was really looking to begin to put the book out to agents and people were reading it and they read that line in the book, uh, they said, you know, this is really the question that you're asking. This is the question that the book is asking. And it's bold and it is so jarring that it can sound like, how dare you ask that question? But in fact, it is the question that the book is asking given how rape is addressed in our society. And so that was how it came to be. And it took me a while to feel comfortable with the boldness, but now I'm, I'm really happy with it. I think it's important. So one of the things I'm curious about, and we'll talk about your book a little bit in the order that it's written in, but one of the things that really struck me throughout your life is that you didn't really talk about what happened to you, which was surprising, particularly because of your profession. Can you mm-hmm. talk about the profession you landed in and your own journey to sort of come out in the community that you worked in? Yes. So I have worked for a number of years uh, at a university overseeing college health care and mental health care and health promotion and sexual assault prevention now, but that came later. And when I took that job, I had graduated from, uh, I had gotten my public health degree, had another job for a while, and then landed at this university. And it was probably 10 or 15 years after the assault. And I felt at the time that it wasn't something that I carried with me every day. I believed then that I had moved on and that I was there to do a job and didn't connect that 
somehow it was important for me to share my history. Later, as the years went on, the issue of sexual assault on college campuses, uh, as, as, as you know, really became front page news. And I became immersed in work on a daily basis that involved sexual assault response, treatment, policies, and prevention. And I would often spend days in meetings where conversations would occur where students were upset, um, staff and faculty were asking a lot of questions about ways that we were responding. Sometimes colleagues would say something that would be difficult for me to hear. And I realized that it was not as put away and, and finished in my life as I thought. So at that point, I thought that I should really start talking about what happened to me. But a couple of people that I worked with who were also quite feminist and, and very, I, I respected them and admired them greatly, also said that when you combine the personal and professional, you want to make sure that your voice is heard for the theory and the work and the knowledge that you have and that everything you see isn't colored by, oh, she's a survivor and, and to be dismissed in a particular way. And even though I knew that that might be, you know, that's like, the phrase, oh, that's their problem, not mine, it also felt like I had to think about it for a while. And also, when these memories come back and when the past sort of invades uh, into the present, I experienced a lot of shame about that. I experienced things that I thought other people would think, like, well, that was a long time ago, or I don't know what I thought. I, I felt like it was it was private and I was, uh, I, I ran these, I ran this department and I just didn't feel comfortable sharing. And so then I eventually did. And it was, it was really important. And none of the things that I thought might happen happened. Um, I felt like I, I had credibility and I could speak my mind and it was a really good decision. Let's talk a little bit about your, your story. So, the listeners understand a little bit about you. And and one of the tenets of the book that, of course, I think is, is realistic for anyone that has suffered sexual violence like this is that there's kind of a before and after. There's who you were before and what you thought your life would be and then how it changes in an instant. So can you share a little bit about who you were before this night in June in 1984 and then what happened that changed your life? Sure. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Um, so I was a young woman living in an apartment with a bunch of friends a couple of years after graduation in Boston and really having the best time of my life. We I, I was so proud just to be paying my own rent and feeling like a, uh, I was starting my life. And after a 
year and a half maybe of jobs that I took basically just to be able to live independently. I had landed a job as an uh, an editorial assistant at a at a magazine in Boston. Um, it was it had a national distribution. It was a small magazine that uh, was for parents who had children with disabilities. And I loved that job. And I felt like I was finally editing and writing and um, and that maybe this would be something that I wanted to do for a while. And, and I didn't know until the night before I was assaulted that there had been a series of rapes in the city. I was at a concert and someone came over to me and said, do you know that there's been a, a spate of, of rapes in, in, in and around the Boston area? And could you put up these posters? And I, and I was like, sure. And then I went home and none of my roommates were home. And I went to bed thinking I put the posters up the next day. And that night, uh, two men came into my room and, and I, and I, I guess I'll just say for the, for this podcast that it was an event that I didn't believe I would survive. And that in so many ways, what I think stuck with, stuck with me all these years is how violence and the belief that you're going to die, it, it's something that changes you and it's not something that ever goes away. And so for some reason, they didn't kill me, and but I, I was disabled uh, by, I was bound and gagged, and, and I'm sorry, I hope this, I didn't need to do it. Trigger warning for people, but I managed to survive. But shortly after, um, I couldn't work. I couldn't concentrate. I moved in with a friend. I quit my job, and everything about my life felt destabilized. But I I knew that I wanted to try to stay in Boston. I, my family lives in rural Ohio and I didn't want to go home. And so I wound up working temp in, uh, there's a big medical area in Boston and I worked temp and I went from place to place for about, for a couple of years. And I felt like what I thought my life might be and the dreams that I had and even my ability to concentrate, read, or build meaningful relationships had really been completely eclipsed. And it took me several years to feel like I had my feet enough on the ground to even begin to think about a job again. And so a lot of the things that happened to me after that felt I don't know if I want to say accidental, but but surprising. Like the first real job that I took, I took because somebody said it's time for you to look for a job again and pointed their finger at a job ad in the Boston Globe and said, how does this sound? Just so that I would apply. And that was the job I wound up taking, working in a methadone clinic. It's where I met my wife. Um, it's It's a few years after that when I decided to go to graduate school. Um, 
you know, wound up in a career that I love, but it wasn't the career that I expected. And then going back to writing, which I'm happy to talk more about, was a way that I felt like I recaptured something that I had lost. And it was very, very meaningful to me. Yes, because writing as a young woman was really what you wanted to pursue. And that was um, something you were very passionate about and envisioned for your life. And then this violent crime happened. And the way that you write this book, it's it's sort of part memoir and part nonfiction, investigative, essayistic in terms of, of commentary on society. And so you open and you really open the book before we learn about your personal situation and what happened to you, uh, that what the way we look at, at rape in this country is so out of, of proportion with like the ramifications for a survivor and the way that the crime is treated by society and the way that often these victims are treated by the law enforcement and the people that are supposed to help them. So there's kind of two questions embedded in that. One is just about writing this and and the choice of style. And then the other is we can, let's talk a little bit about the law enforcement and how that was really almost the biggest trauma of your experience from all of this. Yeah. Um, so the book started as a memoir and it started before it was just a straight memoir about recovering from this, 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 uh, rape. It was, it was, my attempt to understand how people survive what feels unsurvivable to them. And I really was, I had a sort of this braided piece where I would talk about what happened and then I would tell a family story about someone in my family, my, my grandmothers and um, lessons that you can learn from people even when your relationships are complicated and they're challenging characters. And so that was the book I started with. And I then took uh, a memoir class, an intensive memoir class at Grub Street in Boston, which is a writing collective that is phenomenal. Um, for those of you who aren't from Boston, it's really a, an amazing uh, program. And I decided then to just write a straight memoir about, about the rape. And when I, I guess the decision to include the research was a joint decision that I made with my publisher. Um, I, sometimes I feel, so I think effective memoirs, the memoirs that move me um, can be very personal stories that then uh, people can relate to and, and say, well, this didn't exactly happen to me, or this did happen to me. And I felt like this person spoke to me and, and that is an important kind of, kind of work that I respect and love to read. For this book, I felt like part of my story 
um, and part of the social advocate uh, social advocacy work that I do has to do and and also part of the continued trauma had to do with reading over and over and over again how cases of rape are dismissed and the kinds of ways in which people feel like what happened to them doesn't matter in politics, in our laws, by law enforcement, and by the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of uninvestigated um, people, people call it the rape kit backlog, but it's not really that. It's hundreds of thousands of rape kits uh, have not been tested in this country, um, not because people ran out of money or not because um, they didn't, they didn't, you know, I mean, that's sort of what usually what people say is that there's a backlog of rape kits because uh, there's so many, so many assaults that they're, they can't possibly do it, do it. But, but the truth is that a lot of those rape kits aren't tested because there was no intention to ever investigate. And so I felt like I wanted to include in the memoir the ways in which rape victims' feelings of shame and invisibility aren't, aren't their own flaw, that it's, that they're not crazy, and that this is what's happening in our society. And as a way to counterbalance the overwhelming experience of rape survivors, that what happened to them didn't matter. And so that's why I did it. I wanted to make sure that I got the balance right so that it you, you also felt like you were reading a story. I, but I thought that the that the um, information was important. So that was your first question. And then the other question was about sort of what it is that law enforcement, how they respond to rape cases. Yeah, I mean, I think you got it in there, but you you also had your own experience with law enforcement that I think mirrors what happens around the nation. So for me, uh, after I was raped, I I really didn't think much at all about the police, and I really didn't think much about. Um, I wasn't somebody who thought uh, a lot about if they catch them, I'll feel better. And um, I didn't want retribution. I just wanted to get my life back. And I felt like it took every minute of my day just to focus on keeping my feet on the ground. So I didn't really think a lot about the police until years later. But what happened in my case is that the, the Boston Sexual Assault Task Force was formed uh, about a week after my rape. It was the seventh in a series of, of rapes, as I said earlier. And the goal of this task force was to look at crimes in surrounding areas like Boston and Brookline and Alston and these sort of little, these little towns that were all part of Boston, but had separate police departments. And so you could have cases within miles of each other that were really similar or were the perpetrator said the exact same thing or disabled um, 
the victim in the same way and officers wouldn't be talking to each other. And so they, they formed this task force in an effort to coordinate cases. And what I learned 25 years later was that my case was closed probably three weeks after the assault, that it was never turned over to the task force and that they lost the evidence. Um, if they hadn't lost the evidence, they actually could have tested it uh, once the DNA technology had improved like a lot of women that I know and met through my advocacy work um, that happened to them. Uh, and in addition to that, it when I did go back to find out, you know, the people that I saw were clearly horrified and apologetic about what had happened. But I don't really know how much has changed. It's really it's really hard to get a handle on whether, um, because as I say in the book, things being slightly less terrible or things being slightly less egregious or, um, or somebody saying simply, oh, well, you know, if we don't do things like that anymore is a throwaway line if it's not backed up by, uh, officers that treat people with respect, that don't dismiss cases before there's an investigation, that don't make it so difficult to report. And that's still a national problem. You wrote very clearly, um, and many times in the book, it was clear to the reader that you were equally traumatized, at least equally, but maybe more haunted by the police that you encountered along the way, immediately after some investigators who came to the apartment you were staying, your experiences at the actual police department, you got sexist jokes, you got throwaway lines, you know, and it turns out that when you got to see your own file, it was like, I don't know, like a half a page. That's yep. it. That was it. <laughs> it's so, I mean, that I could see how that is, re-traumatizing again and again and again. These are the people that are supposed to help you. And then to also realize that there's hundreds and thousands of women who've essentially been treated the same way. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to, it's, it's really hard to think about, you know, I felt lucky because I had, well, let, let me put that another way. I felt very fortunate that over time I built a life. It was hard, but I did it and had, you know, had a family and continued on with my education. I also know that, and I think I talk about this in the book, that the statistics, once somebody is raped, the statistics about the things that they are more at risk from are exponential, you know, whether it's uh, job loss, economic insecurity, um, difficulty or challenges with intimacy and trust, 
and that PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, can be a lifelong uh, chronic condition. And, and you juxtapose that with how cases uh, just get pushed aside. And it, it just, it, it, it makes, it, it's, out, it's, out, it's outrageous. I'm hoping something can change. Yeah, you write that in your book that per victim, the cost is $120,000 in their lifetime. And that might be out of lost education, lost earning, what they have to pay for mental health. Um, and that that adds up to three point one trillion in the U.S. So yeah. and, and the idea that it's not all women who are rape victims, I would assume I don't know the statistics that it's the majority, but there's also men and, and boys and and little girls. Yes. But that, you know, that that financial loss to an individual in an economy, it just stands for all of the pain and suffering underneath that isn't financial and that, you know, when you began to pick up your life, can you share a little bit about this? You you had mentioned kind of this person who, when you were in a temp job, helped you out. And it was, for me, that was one of the most moving moments in the book. You, you had a temp job and there was a woman there named Shelly who really didn't have to do anything, but, go to work every day and she didn't um if you want to talk about that incident or also just how you ended up there to begin with your sort of path um after the trauma it's it's so interesting to me like i i wouldn't be able to find shelly if i tried because i don't even know her last name but what happened in that temp job was i was working for uh this pretty famous doctor who who was writing a book and I he saw in my resume that I was a and I almost want to put this in quotation marks a writer and an editor I was doing you know once in a while I would edit a paper for a graduate student and it made me feel like I had some little teeny weeny part of my old life by uh by doing so and making 20 bucks literally. And, um, so I was working in this, uh, lab and I was supposed to be helping this doctor write a book and he was always too busy and, uh, it never really went anywhere. And this woman just one day said to me, I want to talk to you. Um, don't bring your lunch in. And so we, we went out for lunch and and she just said, you know, what, what's going on with you? Like, why are you here? And, you know, she didn't, she wasn't putting down doing the work that she did and that I was now doing. She wasn't diminishing it, but she was saying, you sort of stick out like a sore thumb. You have a college degree and, you know, why, what's going on? This is, this is not a job I would expect you to have for a year. You're an English major. Um, what's this about? And so I told her and she said, okay, I'm gonna, I'd like to, I'd like to help you leave this job. Like I really care about you and I want to help you. And, you know, I never asked her anything about her life. Like had somebody been kind to her? Um, what, what gave her that instinct that she would reach out 
you know, reach her hand out and say, I want to help you. And, you know, I feel, it's funny, I feel emotional just even talking about it now. And, and so we walked back to the office and she, the next day, I think she brought out, brought the wand ads in and she opened it and we just kind of, it's like she pointed at this job and said, what about this? You know, we'd look at the qualifications and make sure that I had them. And, and I left and I, I applied for one job. It was a job that I had a modest set of qualifications to get. And I don't know what would have happened if she hadn't have done that. Would I have continued to feel stuck? Would I have eventually moved on in my own? Would it have been another few years? Um, but that was a very, very important moment where just someone's kindness helped me move on in my life in a very significant way. And I, and I want to be somebody who can say that I've done that for other people as well. Yeah. I mean, I have tears now. I was really crying when I read that in the book, but it, it was just so emotional that a stranger, you know, it, it, it sort of juxtapo- juxtaposes everything that happened to you to, I mean, in no way is it, is it equal or does it, is it supposed to be measured as, as equal, but that there are also incredibly kind, good people out there who want to help others and give love and see the potential in someone and help them rise. I think you're so right. And, and that goodness and hope and optimism does, does live. And that the ways in which people are hurt um, can sometimes make it hard to see that. But I think that if we, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to diminish people's experiences who are still struggling, but I would say that it took me a while to see some of that. But once I did, my life was infinitely better. And, and I feel like I'm a really optimistic person. And I hope that the book actually reads that way, that it's, it's serious and it's, um, holds people to account, but there's a lot of love and joy and optimism in the book, I hope, and I hope that comes through. And one of the things that I got out of it that was also maybe something that grew over time or changed over time was just the support groups you entered and the people that you found surrounding you. At first, you were in a group that didn't feel right for you, but you kind of moved from a, a support group maybe in a basement type of situation, all the way to collective action with other victims in D.C. and around the country. Can you talk about that role of support and maybe a little bit about where you started and where that grew to? After I found out that the issue of untested rape evidence was a national issue, I started talking to people about it and, you know, looking within Boston to try to find anybody I could who 
cared about the issue, knew about the issue, if it was something that could have applied to my um, my case. And eventually I was in, so through all of that, through the people that I met, I was invited to go to Washington DC to the Department of Justice because they were holding a focus group on, you know, I believe it was Detroit and a couple of other cities that had found like, you know, found, I'm doing quotation marks, you can't see me, but I'm doing quotation marks. They had found these, you know, 10,000 untested rape kits or 12,000. And um, when, when they, when they started going through them, they were finding matches. And so they were knocking on people's doors saying, you know, that thing that happened to you 22 years ago, well, we know who did it. And sorry, the statute of limitations is, is uh, done, but uh, we thought you'd want to know. And there were a handful of people who were in that situation and they wanted to bring them together to see if they could advise these cities on how they could more appropriately approach survivors. And I was invited, even though I had no information, but I was invited simply because I could speak to the process of looking and trying to find out information. And I kind of felt like I didn't belong because they could all say, and then I, you know, then I found out and then I went to a court case and then I, you know, and, and that wasn't me. I had never met anybody who had been through the level of violence that I had been through and survived. And so hearing these women talk about what they had been through um, and, 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 and cry and sob and, and, you know, and it had happened 20 years ago and 25 years ago. And when they talked about it and how it impacted their lives, I felt, I felt, I felt seen and, and understood. And, you know, just this weekend, I got an email from one of those women who her case hadn't been solved. And I won't say too much about it, but her case hadn't been solved, but they had found DNA from the rape kit that she'd had. And it matched a couple of other women in her city. And so they knew there was a serial rapist, but they didn't have a suspect. And so she had been waiting for this person to, you know, be arrested for anything and have their DNA tested. And um, she just got, she just got a call. I think two detectives knocked on her door to say that her case had been solved 25 years later. And so the first thing she did was write to 10 of us to say, um, I just got this knock on my door. I'm really overwhelmed. I need you. Can we get on a call? And, and everyone was immediately like, yep, we'll drop what we're ever, what, you know, whatever we're doing, we'll find a way to, to talk to you. And that is just so important when you feel, you know, there's something about an experience like this that can make you feel so alone, even if you know so many other people have been through it. I have to say that in writing this book, uh, I can't even tell you the countless number of people who I've known for years who, after reading an essay or reading a part of the book, sit me down and say, you know, can I talk to you about something and disclose something that in some 
cases they've never told anybody else. And and, and I, I find that very powerful that um, people hold things to themselves because they, they don't know who to talk to and they don't necessarily know how it will be received. Because you were truly wronged by, by the system, um, you, you came to this conclusion at the end because you'll know you'll never find out who committed this crime against you because of the loss of the files and uh, the, the, the evidence. But you, you came to the conclusion that it really wasn't about your individual crime, but the system in general. Yeah, I, I did. I, I, also, I also know that, for me anyway, I don't want to speak for anybody else, but you know, pursuing lawsuit. I mean, I, I did write this book, so I am I am calling people to task in that way. But I wasn't somebody who really ultimately would want to pursue legal action. I felt like that would hurt my heart and my soul more than just trying to find a different way to get some closure. And also, it's really actually hard, if not impossible, to effectively sue law enforcement. Um, there's so many protections that they have uh, in law and in practice that it's um, you can try, but it's it's not usually very helpful. And so instead, I felt like what I can do and what would be more uh, to my personality, would be to speak out, um, try to get this book out there, try to get the message of the book out there. And um, also in doing so, having people who've experienced rape and sexual assault and domestic violence who have felt so alone and unseen feel like there are people out there who are trying to make a difference. And even if they're not in a space where they can either safely or emotionally, you know, join hands with all of us who are saying this is absolute, this absolutely has to change, that there are people out there who are going to work for the larger effort. So that, that's what I decided instead would be my, would be my um, path. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? <clears throat> this is from the amazing Virginia Woolf. I told you in the course of this paper that Shakespeare had a sister, but do not look for her in Sir Sidney Lee's Life of the Poet. She died young, alas, she never wrote a word. She lies buried where the omnibuses now stop, opposite the elephant and castle. Now my belief is that this poet who never wrote a word and was buried at the crossroads still lives. She lives in you and in me, and in many other women who are not here tonight, for they are washing up the dishes and putting the children to bed. But she lives, for great poets do not die. They are continuing presences. They need only the opportunity to walk among us in the flesh. This opportunity, as I think, it is now coming within your power to give her. For my belief is that we, if we live another century or so, I'm talking of the common life, which is the real life, and not of the little separate lives which we live as individuals and have 500 a year each of us in rooms of our own 
if we have the habit of freedom and the courage to write exactly what we think, if we escape a little from the common sitting room and see human beings, not always in their relation to each other, but in relation to reality and the sky too, and the trees or whatever it may be in themselves. If we look past Milton's bogey for no human being should shut out the view. If we face the fact for it is a fact that there is no arm to cling to, but that we go alone and that our relation is to the world of reality and not only to the world of men and women, then the opportunity will come and the dead poet who was Shakespeare's sister will put on the body which she has so often laid down, drawing her life from the lives of the unknown who were her forerunners as her brother did before her, she will be born. As for her coming without that preparation, without that effort on our part, without that determination, that when she is born again, she shall find it possible to live and write her poetry that we cannot expect for that would be impossible. But I maintain that she would come if we worked for her and that so to work even in poverty and obscurity is worthwhile. Do you want to share why you chose that? For a couple of reasons. One is because when I went to college, I had come from a rural Ohio high school, and there were authors and stories that my friends had read that I had never even heard of some of these people. And Virginia Woolf was one of uh, one of my friend's favorite authors. And so I tried really hard to read her writing and I found it so lyrical and difficult to read that I always had to read it out loud or I would get lost. And so I wanted to just share it because I find it beautiful. I find anything she writes just so amazing in its ability to sort of capture a scene and a feeling and a world. And then, of course, I guess I'll be honest that, you know, this was written in 1929 and she says 100 years from now. And I looked up, you know, back then, 20% of women were in the workforce. And um, and she was writing about how difficult it is for women to write. And I feel like women's voices can be heard and their stories can be told. So that's why I chose it. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky to write or changed a lot from the first draft. Yes. So I chose uh, a small section from my book that is about telling my daughter about being raped. And um, this piece was really hard to write because I wanted to get it right. And I also knew that at some point she would she would read it. And so I was talking about her and I was also talking about something difficult and something personal. And so um, it's changed a little bit over different drafts, but it has basically stayed the same. So I'm just gonna read the beginning of it, a very short section. My first invitation to speak about the impact of untested rape kits would be the round table discussion at the Department of Justice in Washington, DC. I said yes, but I needed to first attend to something else I'd been dreading. When you are a parent who has experienced trauma, 
eventually you have to tell your kids. And this had to be the moment I would do just that. It was time. When our daughter Becca was three, she began having nightmares. I need to sleep here, she said, running into our room for the third time in one week. The bears are going to come in my room and take me, she whimpered, while we both rubbed her back until she fell asleep. It's my fault, I said to Mary. She's absorbed my fears through her pores. Come on, she thinks something's going to climb through a window and hurt her. That doesn't take a genius to interpret. Lots of kids have fear, fears, Mary said, but her reassurance fell flat on my guilty heart. I had read a book recently about how children of Holocaust survivors experienced high rates of depression and anxiety, regardless of whether their parents acknowledged what happened to them. I saw a potential parallel in our family, but still didn't know how to address the topic of rape at Becca's tender age. Almost a decade later, Becca, now in middle school, I'd bought my ticket to DC and my friends had been inundating me with questions without filtering who was in the room. Are you nervous? Do you know what it's gonna be like? We wanted Becca to hear my story from us, not by accident or incidentally. Do you wanna share about that? Yeah, so the story goes on where we tell her and she's shocked and she has a few questions. And then later one day, she asks me why I don't know how to swim. If I, if I was raped, how could I not know how to swim? How can I be afraid? And what she was asking me was, you know, wasn't I sort of inculcated from ever experiencing fear ever again because I had survived that? And we wind up where she begs me to let her teach me how to swim. And I was absolutely terrified and it was the last thing in the world I wanted to do, but I did it. I didn't learn how to swim, but I did the lessons with her. And it was a real moment for us as a a, a parent and a child where, you know, the child was basically asking me to, what the question I felt like she was asking me was, can we always conquer our fears? And the answer is actually no. But what we can do is look to the people who we love and trust to try to help get through difficult times together. And, um, and so I think, I think the swimming lessons were a success. Where do you write? The, the kids are now both grown and, and done with college. And um, we turned one of the smaller bedrooms into an office for me. And I really love it. I have a picture of Carson McCullers staring at me, one of my favorite authors. I almost picked a, an excerpt from her to read. And, um, and so I guess I do have a room of my own now to write. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, I still work full time. And when I'm home and I'm writing and I'm not working, um, we have two dogs uh, who I like to take for walks. You know, if I get away from writing, I might want to read or just simply spend time with, with Mary or if the kids are around, spend time with them. But, you know, just sort of simple, simple pleasures to get away and to, and to clear my mind. 
Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I often read it to Mary. Like I'll say, can I read you something, especially if it's new? And she's usually willing. And then, you know, we had a writing group for years after um, our Grub Street class. And some of those people I'm still very close to and will share writing with, with them and get feedback. And that's still incredibly helpful. How have you dealt with rejection? I believe that rejection is part, I mean, this is, it probably sounds too intellectual that I'm not in my heart, but I think rejection is essential and I try not to take it personally. My writing teacher said that um, you have to submit a piece over and over again and expect it to be rejected and that you're lucky if an editor writes back with any you know, takes their time to write any comment like this piece is really great, but I don't feel the emotion or something that helps you move to the next uh, the next best draft instead of just quickly resubmitting it somewhere else. So I try to use it as an opportunity to make the piece stronger. Doesn't bother me too much. What is your favorite word? <sighs> Hope. Well, thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate your your talking to me. Well, thank you for your time and for reading the book and for such thoughtful questions. I've really enjoyed talking with you. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Michelle Bowdler, author of Is Rape a Crime? If you like today's show, check out my interview with Alexandria Marzano-Lesnevich, whose book, Fact of a Body, mixes her experience as the victim of sexual abuse alongside the retelling of a death row case in Louisiana. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 290 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Ursula Hagee and Aral Mazes, I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.